Hey, now, welcome to Mo Faith, episode three, right? So, hey, this is so, uh, yeah. Faith. This is Faith Mo. and Mo. What's yeah. up? Yeah. What's up, what's up? And uh, I just, we're just going to get right into it. And I just informed Mo, who doesn't do news, as you know, yeah. so many people in this world are just like, hey, I'm going to skip it. Um, but I did let Mo know that we had a bit of a tragedy in America that also has ties to the LGBT community with a recent shooting um, undertaken by a person who self-identified as a transgender man or transgender masculine or trans in some fashion. Um, and so we're going to get right into it because Mo was saying something super important that I think we just want to start with, which is... Oh, yeah. So... Shootings are tragedies. Yeah. Shootings are tragedies. Every single shooting that we have, we're just going to start right there. It's a tragedy. And before we before we go further than than that, uh, I believe it, I was saying it's a mental health tragedy. Yeah, I think yeah. every single one, if we really get down to the core of what's happened here, these are mental health tragedies that may, if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with the soul of America, could be prevented if we really address the mental health issues that are are predominant in our country that we're too afraid as leaders to address. Yeah, I, I think that, um, and in this case with the news that uh, has been reported so far, it's been reported that this person who undertook this, this crime, um, that they were under mental health supervision, that they were on medications, and that they had, their parents had removed their guns or, or sought to see their guns removed because of the, the safety issue of them having uh, what's been called in the press a, a dis, uh, emotional disorder, um, and a, an emotional disturbance disorder, that they had emotional issues. And so their parents were really like, no, we don't want you to have guns. Um, but unfortunately, this person was able to hide the guns and, and, and you know, mm. pretend to their parents that who they lived with, that this wasn't happening. Um, and I, I do think that that makes it such a hard thing for us. We've seen a similar thing with other shootings here in America where people who are under mental health supervision go on to, you know, create crime, go on to hurt people. And I, I do also believe the timing is um, – we ha it has to be looked at, right? Trans Day of Visibility is on the 31st of this month. So that's a really big, starting to become a very large um, celebration of trans rights and trans awareness. And um, to have a, a shooting by a trans person on that week, I think, is also significant. That there is um, a rising tension. Um, I would even call it a terror. That I, I feel that I, I sense that trans people um, are feeling in the world. And I also want to say to people that, you know, hey, I identify as LGBT. And that's because I'm just a little bit more lesbian than bi. Just slightly. <laughs> I, I would also call myself a lesbian bisexual in the mm -hmm. sense that I, 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 I like guys, but I just I don't really prefer them at this moment in my life. Mm. Um, and then I also identify as gay because gay used to mean gay power, which I think everybody can be part of in the LGBT community. And then I'm bi. And then I'm also trans in the sense that I take testosterone to feel better, to feel excited, to have energy, to not lose my hair. Um, it's helped my, my heart become stronger. And that's also because I'm intersex, which means I have natural hormones that are naturally male, um, just that I was born with. I was born growing a beard by the time I was like 11 without any medical stuff, anything at all. <laughs> it's just who I am. 
Um, yeah. And then I also am non-binary, right? So I, 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 I am in this whole world, but I, I do also think that trans is something that needs to extend to everybody, that people who are non-trans should be able to access trans medicine and get their, their boobies to become bigger if they don't like that and it really causes them to feel sad about their bodies. Why should they also have um, access to free health care to correct those issues? Or men who have more boobies than they would like to have. Mm-hmm. So I call things boobies, but <laughs> people are always like, I'm like, I just think it's cute. It's funny. Boobies. But I just think it's one of those things that I really would love to see extended to our, our world. That everybody gets to have a body that they enjoy, that they love. Um, and I, I don't really see it as this, um, you know, there's there's folks who are conservative who disagree with me. You know, they say, no, that there's only two genders, you know, that none of this is else is real. And unfortunately, they're not aware that God has created gender diversity, that folks who are hermaphrodites or people who had multiple genders, as they were called years ago, have existed for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that, unfortunately, a lot of trans people are also very unaware of that history. They're Mm -hmm. unaware that there was a huge break between trans and intersex in the 90s. Um, and that there are people who are intersex people who are really against trans people, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because they really feel like they're the ones who should have the support for having our bodies be different versus people who believe in their heads that their bodies are different, mm. right? And yeah. so I, I think that there needs to be a healing there because I do see a lot of trans people who have, um, they don't fit the gender norm that they were born into, right? Yeah. They're, they're ugly women. And they're much better as men, where they are ugly men who are much better as women. And I, I think if you have the joy to be able to see that in people, you could see that trans does exist in a real, authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that in the last five years, there's been uh, a, a type of war. You know, the death threats against J.K. Rowling. Um, mm-hmm. the, I myself have experienced death threats from trans community members. Um, you know, it's it's been I, really insane. <laughs> you know, here's the thing, though, Faith. I don't actually remember a time that America hasn't been at war. I really, like, I... Taking us back to history class, because really... I, so, I'm... You and I started our pre-recorded conversation with a little bit of a, you can do current events and I can do past events. This is kind of where, 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 we're, where we're at. So let, uh, let me take us back in time to the 90s a little bit here. Uh, I recall um, that a lot of transgender people in the 90s were being murdered left and right. And that um, there was a discussion about whether or not uh, gender fluidity existed. And that would have meant that gender was actually on a scale and that it it was something that slid instead of something that was a switch to be left or right. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me personally, as as a lesbian, but a... Um, more masculine-leaning lesbian, um, I've always identified as what we would have termed in the 90s a soft butch. Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and for what people in the 90s would have would have referred to me as just butch, 
um but the there was a book that came out in the nine in i think the late 80s or early 90s called soft butch blues stone butch blues stone butch blues see that's that that memory um so good so dang close sometimes it's really close and i what i find for people who have really good memories like that is sometimes what happens is the book might have been called stone butch blues but for you it was soft yeah So, so it, it's something that can be common with people who have really strong memories is that we will almost adjust content to fit ourselves and then carry that content adjusted in our brains and then always make that same mistake for, for from here to forever. Um, and it's a, it's a good one. It's a, it reflects who you are, right? Uh, it's God, only for the that? last couple of years, though, because I'm serious. Uh, it's... It's a recent phenomenon that's re- directly related to stress-related brain damage. Yes, yes, yes. The Stonebush Blues was written by Leslie Feinberg, who oh, thank you. I, uh, I, I, I met at one point in New York um, before they passed away. I believe they passed away a couple years ago. What was it? Yeah, November 15th, 2014. It was some years ago. Uh, but they, they, they did transition and from lesbian to transgender and we're part of a larger conversation about what that looks like um and just like like yeah here on their wikipedia on the wikipedia it says i'm a butch lesbian a transgender lesbian um you can refer to me as she or her particularly in non-trans settings which would in referring to me as he would resolve the social contradiction between birth sex and gender but they, Leslie Feinberg, liked the general neutral pronoun Z here. And, you know, so 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the widow says they didn't care which pronouns were used as long as they were with respect. See, yeah. And I, I think that's a very strong, um, a strong way that most trans people who are over the age of 40 or over the age of 50 feel that mm-hmm. almost all of them, especially if they're trans masculine, I think. Um, or trans non-binary or very like doesn't matter you know um i had this funny thing at this birthday party a couple days ago um because you know i'm i'm trans um but i'm non-binary so i have a whole bunch of medicine so i take testosterone Mm -hmm. but then i take a cream called eflora or it's also called vaniqua here in the united states but i i ordered it from overseas and um it gets rid of hair growth so so I have to take that because the testosterone would have me have a beard and I really don't want to have a beard right mm-hmm. so I just feel very strongly that I want to be able to go between gender representations I don't feel very strongly about being masculine mm-hmm. and I, I tell people I kind of identify as a masculine woman or a femme uh, non-binary person um, I just that's who I am but I I didn't I had a little bit of scruff when I went to this birthday party and this little girl was so into me. She was like two years old. So cute. Like mini, you know, mini mouse dress, little pink bow. She was Latina, but she was, she was just starting to talk. She's like two years old. And she's like, you're great. And her mom's like, I'm sorry. She loves to talk to people. And I'm like, it's okay. I, you know, build that confidence, right? Like, yeah, it's good for you, little girl. And so she jumps in my lap and she starts stroking my chin. She's like, you're a daddy. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I said, I was like, I'm Storm's mom. She's like, no, you're Storm's dad. I was like, no, I, he has another dad. And, <laughs> <laughs> and 
and her mom's like looking at me like I don't know what to fucking say and I'm like I totally get it like I I, I I'm gonna see I'm gonna keep on saying I'm a mom and I, this little girl she's like no but you you look like a boy and I said you know there's some girls who look like boys and she was like I said I know it's strange but true <laughs> so i'm having like this conversation on the side her mom's looking at me i'm like i'm trying i'm trying i don't want to push anything on your child here but you know i'm going to strongly identify that i am my child's mom right which is and that's that's important to me no matter what type of gender i'm in i am this person's mother right and i carry them inside me i breastfed them i am their mother right but my who I am today and my gender is different than who I was uh, when I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm OK with that. But it was it was really hilarious because she was so dead on it. She was just like, no, you're a daddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm a daddy. Whatever you say, little girl, you know, and then but, I, say, I mean, <laughs> Her parents are just like, we're so sorry. I was like, no, it's fine. It's totally okay. Like, <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> and it does, because, you know, if I come out wearing a wig and a bunch of makeup, the little kids go crazy and go, oh, my God, you're a girl today. And I'm like, yes, look at that, you know. But, and see, that's the wonder of two-year-olds. You can approach a two-year-old with honesty, and they'll approach you back with their honesty. And you Straight can up. have a full-blown conversation at their level with truth yeah yeah and as long as nobody it's so crazy to say this because it's you having a conversation with a two-year-old but as long as nobody is interfering you can actually communicate with them oh yeah yeah i mean her mom was like you know right her mom and her sister were right there and i was like you know is it okay she wants to get in my lap you know i was checking with the parents to make yeah. sure like it's okay no, and i told them you know what i always say which is i love to with to be with the little ones because I, I i'm not gonna have another one so the fact that i can't you know they smell so good and then you can just hand them right back and then they'll stop smelling good, you know, and, but you're not there for that. You know, <laughs> I'm always like, I just love it. So people are always no. like, you can hand a baby to me. Cause I will take a baby. I'll take a two year old. I'll take a five year old. I have like children following me and they're very people. Parents can get a little concerned. I had one girl at the, at the school who was really, she, I like you. You're great. And I was talking to her and her mom was giving me this look and I'm like, Oh, I'm gonna get this fucking look. And sure enough, she she told my son, my mom says, I can't talk to your mom anymore. I'm not supposed to talk to adults. And I'm like, that's true. Like, you know, it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, I'm okay with that. You know, like, yeah, I don't I'm not trying to, (laughs) you know, I my life would be just fine without talking to five year olds. You know what I'm saying? So but you want to be friendly. At the same time, you want kids to understand and have some really strong boundaries that they're starting to build about right. you know what's appropriate and that type of thing and so you keep that right. in mind you know especially as a parent um that you know your kid is your kid right but do you you're not going to say nothing about other people's kids you're going to go find those people's parents and then say something to them you know that's that's how a lot of us operate i think is to to be respectful of parents and what the, what they want for their child and you know so i wouldn't necessarily tell a child oh well you know gender is a construct and there's many genders in the world like that's not my business to tell no. a child. Their mom wants to have that conversation. If they want to have that conversation with their mom, sure. But, you know, my thing is just like autonomy. If you tell me, well, you're a man, I'm going to be like, it's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> you know? uh, 
just because that's just you know who I am, and I also feel like, hey, I get that right to identify myself. Right. <laughs> I just think I'm. I think where I'm going with this is that kids aren't taught. Like kids aren't natural. Like their natural state is is truth speaking. Yes. And reflective. Yes, what they see, what they know. And it's true that many kids are not, you know, they're not being as taught as expansively as I taught my kid when he was real little. You know, this was 10 years ago. And I, being an intersex person, was concerned that my child would be slotted into gender norms that he didn't necessarily love. Mm, and I mm. didn't want that to happen to him. I wanted him to have, to come to his world the way he wanted to, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I, I might have gone in error the wrong way in the sense that I did have him going to gender nonconforming groups. He at one point went to drag school, which he called dragon school because he got a lot of confusion there. <laughs> so to go to dragon school? I know, yeah. So he went to dragon school where they taught him how to dress up in a dragon-like dress and wear makeup to look like a dragon. So I think they might have gotten confused on their side that he wants self-identified as a dragon, but we're going to let it go. Drag <laughs> three I. It was really funny. And his dad took him. You know, I couldn't I couldn't make it. And I said, no, it's okay. He, you know, they invited him. And they said, we have a, a program for kids of color that are nonconforming. Would you like him to, you know, learn from a drag queen? And they had a little program. It was at a school. And all the parents were there and they all got dressed up and they did a performance of just the kids and no, you know, there was no public. It was, it was a bunch of kids dressing up and dress up and, and talking about how they felt about that. Um, and, and to me, that's very different than my kid getting dressed up to do a drag performance on top of a bar for gay guys. Ooh. That, that to me is, Ooh. I'm not down with that. And I, I don't think so it's a let's good idea. just talk about. <laughs> John Benet Ramsey. Let's throw it back to the '90s and the '80s, and Man, the who's got their oh, children doing shows for grown-ups? Well, that's such a thing. I really haven't heard that, Mo. I really haven't. That's a really good memory check, right? That a lot of people were so critical of. Uh, for folks who don't recall, in the 1990s, there was a poor, a lovely little girl who was unfortunately found murdered. Um, and she had been a beauty queen um, as a very small child. And it started a huge conversation, right, that Mo's remembering about um, whether or not parents should have their children performing at such a young age in such an adult role, right? right. With little red right. lipstick and little dresses, and they looked like little adults, but they were six years old. Doing full beauty pageant, same like Mrs. Hawaii. I feel really awkward saying it, but it seems to me that the timing after JonBenet Ramsey was murdered and after they never found the killer, it would only have been about less than 10 years later that the show Toddlers and Tierras started. I... And that is a long-running show now that's been around for almost a decade, if not more, showcasing child beauty queens. So I, I do that's wonder if there were... so disturbing to me on levels I can't even begin to... I imagine it would be. Um, <laughs> but I believe it's still around. This is a, a real show. I've never watched it, of course, but it's a thing on, um, I think, the, the Learning Channel or one of those type of things. 
it became a thing because one of the kids had like you know a mom that was just too much yeah reality season 2009 to 2018 it looks like okay so how like so that's about 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 20 years right nine how does that is this a comparison of apples and apples or is this a comparison of apples and oranges? I think it's interesting because ultimately they're the same backlash. The, the toddlers and Sierra show was a look at a world of child beauty pageants, according to the IMBD, IMDB link. Um, and it ultimately led to a spinoff because one of the children who was featured was a larger girl named Alana Thompson, who was also known as Honey Boo Boo. That's where she got her start. Oh god. That's where she comes from. Yeah. So I was I was I'm sure you know Honey Boo Boo. Yeah, everybody knows her. <laughs> She's such a sweetheart, I think. Um and as somebody who came up inside of this world, I, I really have been glad to see her survival um and and her growth. I believe she's engaged now to um to her boyfriend of, of several years now. She's she's eighteen, nineteen and her boyfriend's twenty, twenty two and um, you know, she's kind of settled and she's been reuniting with her mother who's been working on her sobriety. Mama June, right? So, um, but, and it's so interesting, right, that the John Bonet Ramsey story was so destructive. You know, the, it was one of the first times that the internet kind of became an internet sleuth system of trying to create stories and narratives based off of police records nobody had. Um, mm hmm. And that family was was, you know, they were they were tortured, uh, you know. Yeah, with, essentially. With, with people thinking that they had had something to do with this, and and they were never. They still to this day, the, the I believe John Bonet's brother um, is now taking up the case as his family has his parents have passed away and become ill. That he's now you know constantly pushing the Denver police to to rerun the DNA. Because when they first did it, they weren't able to find it. But just in the last five years, there's been huge uh, uh, changes in DNA technology that I think they're hoping will, will help them. But, yeah, I do think that a lot of people were really upset by that in a way that they're not upset. Uh, and I think that gets to the heart of my argument against LGBT young people engaging in these type of en engagements. Um, mm -hmm. a, a, to be LGBT is something that I feel you really understand the truth of by the, when you're 19, 20 years old, where by, when you're 15 and LGBT, you might be bi, you might be queer, you might eventually be lesbian, you might eventually be straight. Mm -hmm. So to push people into like a bucket or push them into a bubble or a box when they're really young doesn't make a lot of sense to me because we just don't see people... Um, landing on their LGBT identity until they're a bit older. And I also wonder if the care that people have towards young non-trans girls is reflected in their fight to see those people treated well. And, and subsequently, when you see, you know, non-trans straight people fighting for the chance to, for drag kids to be drag kids, is that really um, internalized homophobia and internalized transphobia? That those straight people really don't see the need to protect those children the way they, they see the need to protect young girls who dress up in tiaras. It's crazy. Right? And maybe, yeah. maybe it's a society. Maybe it's a society we know young girls are subject to assault. 
how many people are aware that LGBT young people experience high rates of sexual abuse within their youth, um, high rates of sexual harassment, high rates of molestation or childhood sexual abuse. Um, I don't I don't know that many people are aware that that's part of LGBT growing up that a lot of people are subject to those realities. Um, often, unfortunately, perpetuated by queer perpetrators, right? That there are uh -huh. people who are LGBT who are doing these assaults on young people. Um, that was definitely my experience when I was a little girl, that I was molested by girls and boys. Uh -huh. I, unfortunately, was abused by heterosexual males. Um, as a kid. Every single person who assaulted me as a child and an adult has been a heterosexual male, actually. Which may play a bit into my lesbianism. Um, I I would like to put that out there that um, rape does like not actually help people become straight. So anybody who was thinking that might help, that's not going to help. Like yeah, I'm just that's like the, consider that a public service announcement. It doesn't. It's not going to get that out of your mind. It's going to do the opposite. It's going to do the opposite. Right. And I, I do think that there are there's such a good body of work that talks about how sexual development happens, that we you know come to what we like and what we enjoy. And then we have a good body of work that also talks about PTSD, sexual assault surviving, that mm -hmm. folks who deal with that will avoid those similar type of scenarios. Mm -hmm. Are there people who are lesbian or bi or engaged in same-sex relationships because it's safer or because it feels better, because it doesn't trigger certain memories? Mm -hmm. Right, right. I, I think, and I, to say, you know, there's been a statement, I've heard at times, oh, well, those people aren't really queer, right? Um, but I, I'd say they're just as queer as everybody else. However, whatever reason you're queer for, if that makes sense, it doesn't matter, right? Like, <laughs> I, I do need to put this one out there. I just like um, I have read some studies about the epigenetic markers that we inherit from our parents. Hell yeah. And my family has come to the conclusion that my father's epigenetic markers were so highly involved in the I like women category that most of his children like women. That's, That's just something he passed on to all yeah. of us, like all of us. Women lovers. Yeah, like we are pro women. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at least I, I am. Yeah, I could have got that from my dad. He also is a real strong lover of women. So uh, <laughs> to his detriment at times. Um, so I wonder <clears throat> It might be an interesting thing to study as far as, especially if there is a link to philandering fathers um, who, who uh, engage with lots of women or love women to the detriment of, of their marriages or relationships, and how many of those men have child, female children or you know non-binary kids that identify as lesbian. Um, that be might be... We might have a link there, Mo. New research, new research. <laughs> yes, you know, um, I, you know. So I think it's a really interesting thing as far as what our community, quote unquote, LGBT. You know, after leaving San Luis Obispo High School in 1998, you know, I went to UCLA, and I came out my freshman year. Right, um, I had always really liked lesbian porn 
for lack mm-hmm. of a better word. That, that was my thing. I always, you know, had some on me or carried it with me. Um, it was something I had to protect because when found in my house, it would be burned and I would be severely punished. Right. Um, and at times I was even taken by my parents for what they now call as ex-gay therapy or conversion therapy, where, you know, pastors would lay their hands on me and try to get rid of this demon of homosexuality. And yeah. so my mom, was, she was just taking me like, what can I do to get rid of this queerness? It's got to get, I have to rub it off of you, you know? <laughs> and I would, you know, retaliate by getting online and finding some, some, you know, adult content I could sneak in my bag to maintain this thing. Right. Um, and so when I got to college, it was like, whoa, I could take this bus, to this place called West Hollywood. And they had all these adult shops with like adult content. I remember the first time I go in there, they go, there's nothing for straight people here. And I'm like, I'm here for women. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, Oh my God, you're one of the, Oh yes, we have lesbians. And I didn't even know anything. I was just like, well, show me where the women's stuff is. (laughs) And so I got a whole bunch of tapes and brought it back. And some kids that I was knowing in the dorms, they found this and they're like, you're a lesbian. I was like, I like this, but that means I'm a lesbian. Like, you know, so then I started going to a group to talk to people about, am I lesbian? And I met my first girlfriend there who was very sure I was a lesbian. And so we began engaging in lesbianism. Um, (laughs) Isn't it awesome how other people know you are something before you ever know? Um, And and we had, it was a whole year of making out and and hooking up uh, across the UCLA campus with our little lesbian selves, little lesbian teen selves, you know, young freshmanness. And then then I I kept on having this issue of, but I think guys are hot, right? And it was really like this thing of, like, I'm very attracted to men. I think men are great. Like, I don't have that feeling of I just want to be with men. And that, to me, was a real big distinction. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of separated me from the lesbian world because I still, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to even and, – and also be socially around men, mm-hmm. right, in a way that I felt a lot of lesbians were like, no, we would never have them in our circle. What are you doing? I'm like, they're cool. They're fucking gay. Mm-hmm. Like, gay men and lesbians don't spend time together. I'm like, what? what's going on? So <laughs> – <laughs> And I was kind of working my way through stuff. I always felt college was like Skittles. You know, I tasted all the rainbow. Um, (laughs) You know, I I dated also when I was in college, I went out with some gay men who were closet bisexuals. And, you know, so I learned how to please a gay man. You know, how do you have sex with a guy if you're not a guy? But they want to be with a guy. There's things you can do. Um, There's pieces you can wear, right? So (laughs) there's places you can go. I learned all this stuff. I was like, what? You know, but it was one of those things where back in the day in like 99, 2000, things were very much, you're, you know, an Ani DeFranco lesbian, you're a butch lesbian, you are a lipstick lesbian, you are, you know, all these definitions that existed, I think really kind of have almost passed away. Yeah. Do you still see people talking like that anywhere? No, no. Um, What I see now is somewhat interesting because I don't actually know where I fit in at this point. Um, oddly, I see a lot more of things like cisgendered and, um, uh, it's, it's, um, like I don't identify as transgendered and I don't identify as, as cisgendered. 
Um, I, I would, agree with that. I'm very against people calling anybody cisgender. I think that that's a ridiculous thing. I say non-trans. You're trans, you're non-trans. Like, who am I to tell you what you are? At this moment, you've not said you're trans, so I'll say you're non-trans. Well, for... I just... Well... The, cisgender is like a power trip to I me. I understand it's like a where the term like, came from, and that's exactly what it is. It's the trans community making a term of power for themselves that has taken on a life of its own and, and i don't argue, feel like useful at one using, time I, yeah I would say that. at one time in 1995 to say cisgender is different than today um but i i i could also like i could go with gender non-conforming um and I, I guess I could go with that in that uh, I have never identified as female, like a woman, like, like, if you Femme. call me lady, I'm like, dude, who are you talking to? You're obviously not talking to me because I'm far more likely to have really dirty hands because I was working on a car and doing some really unladylike shit. Yeah, yeah. Um. So if we're going to be out there getting dirty and not doing the ladylike things, probably we shouldn't be throwing ourselves in the lady category. And if we're not throwing ourselves in the lady category, then we're not identifying there is kind of really where I sit. Um, but I, I also have never once in my life ever wanted to have a penis, even though other people have projected that want onto me. Um, sure. It doesn't exist. I don't want it. Uh, I never wanted it. Um, and though you, whomever you might be, might think of me as a guy, I am not one and I don't want to be one. Mm -hmm. So where that leaves us, I don't really know. I think the real interesting thing is that the, there's been a forced unification, right? Mm -hmm. Which I, you know, history might blame me for some of that in the sense that I was a super strong proponent of the concept of LGBT from 1999 to maybe 2020, right? That we should all be in the same community. We all share these things that we have these things, but the reality is it's not true, yeah? That gay men have access to masculine privilege, male privilege, male access in a way that I'll never experience, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. white LGBT people are living a life that black LGBT people will never see, never reach for, never experience, nor do we want to, mm -hmm. yeah? Black LGBT people do not want to be white LGBT, right? right. So th there's a concept there that we've kind of really, oh, let's, we're all together. Um, and I think we see that in the funding, that there's communities that are historically disprivileged in LGBT funding, namely bisexuals and lesbians, mm -hmm. that now have gone almost 100 years without any true support, any real lived like, love um, and I was just looking at the most recent data report from the group called the LGBT Funders, which tracks the largest amount of funding for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender funding. And now transgender funding is the majority of LGBT funding. 30% of LGBT funding went to trans community in comparison to 6% for gay men and wow. less for lesbians, less for bisexuals. Uh, $201 million counted in this last report only $58,000 were earmarked for the bisexual community, which represents over 50% of the LGBT community, right? So it, basically to me, I, I have a nickname for LGBT, which is let's get by taking. 
<laughs> because I really do think that there's a history within one single community of appropriating experience, right? Um, and that could be stemming from the 1960s civil rights movement that the LGBT community rose during that time, taking away from black and brown and native civil rights movements um, and okay. setting itself apart and saying, this is really important. And that was my experience as a black LGBT person that black activists were like, you can't be both. And LGBT activists were like, you can't be both in the sense but that you, you can be whatever you want, but we're not going to fund you unless it's for LGBT. If we're LGBT, we're not going to fund you if you're doing black stuff, if it's LGBT, it has to be black, right? That there's no a, a constant rubbing against, a constant aggravation, a constant disregard for communities of color within the LGBT community that now I see being ignored to the point that um, all the storylines are being appropriated, right? Like, yeah. my people have always historically been underrepresented. We've been here since the beginning. We built this country. No, mm -hmm. black people and brown people and native folks did. And white people for sure helped. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was out, y'all, Italians, the Germans, <laughs> the Scottish, the Irish, right? Like, y'all, we can't yeah. just be like, only one group of people made stuff. Yes, there were people who were slaves who did a whole bunch, right? But there were also Irish people who were enslaved, right? There were also indentured folks who were enslaved for several hundred years here, right? And we don't forget the natives, and let's not forget the Chinese building a railroad across the country, okay? So just, no, like, just give it, like, give everybody credit, you know? And, and, and that's, I think, a thing that I'm seeing in LGBT where it's like only us, only this one small community of people have been disprivileged. And it's a narrative pull. It's it's an attempt to say we are the most disprivileged when really right now, thirty percent of two hundred million, roughly that's like ten million dollars or something, right? Like thirty percent of two hundred million. That's like sixty million. Sixty million. See, I was gonna say, let's do the math. It's like times three on that, right? So sixty million dollars is going to trans community when the trans community is a very small group of people. Right, like really small, like one percent to five to three percent tops of, of American population, and that's being generous. Right, so if you have like three hundred, four hundred thousand people in the country who identify as transgender, and they're getting thirty percent of the funding, like what is that doing to like lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, non-binary, intersex? Right. Like how how is that changing our, our world, I think? And I think we're seeing what's happening is that there's a rise in what I identify essentially as trans supremacy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That the I trans can't, I can't say it, though. So right or accurate or, or more correct, which I, could be a very common thing. We see this historically, right, that any time a community that has been underserved rises up and reclaims space, Sometimes it might go a little overboard. I see what you're saying. I see very well what you're saying. Historically, right? Like that, yes, that... historically we have had um, a moment um, of recovery, I'll call it, where we give an over like an, an over amount or um, an excess of resources in a recovery to pull a group from a disadvantage 
The right. question being, what is the right amount so that we're not hurting the other groups that are also disadvantaged? And to and, not put too fine a point on it, why would we focus on white LGBT people having all the things, aka having white people have all the things, when all these mm. folks of color are deeply disprivileged in the same country? So then this also brings something from one of our earlier um, things that we talked about that I wanted to ask you, like, or just one of the things that I wanted to speak with you. I th yeah, yeah. I thought yeah, it was yeah. really cool. And let me see if I can get it in my out my tongue out my tongue and off my mind um so i identify as mixed race white but mm -hmm. the world sees me as white so my experience is as a white person and i live as a privileged white person i don't want anybody who comes across this podcast to mistake the experience that i've had in this world i have come through uh privileged um, and so many things that I will say on this podcast will come off from the uh, well-meaning white perspective. And I ain't even trying to mix words here. Um, however, I have also consistently spent my life trying to fight for the aspect of my family and my personality and my being that knew I was mixed race that knew that somewhere within my heart and soul was somebody whose name I know now to be Duarte Monzingo. Mm -hmm. So I know for a fact that a part of my family has been erased. The black part of my family has been erased. Like everybody who sees me wants me to think I'm just white and there is no black and that I don't need to have a concern for the black community because I'm a white person. So us having this conversation about why should I care that there is um, more resources going to the white transgendered community than there are going to the black transgendered community, it should matter to me because I'm a fucking human being. Well, I think also just for us to, to just, just really, it's interesting, just really interesting point, right? So the theory is that one group of people who've been deeply disprivileged should have an increase in resources like the trans community has seen because of their history of disprivilege mm -hmm. while that same community will disprivilege its own people of color and black folks and give them nothing if not even worse than nothing right um there's multiple trans organizers who i've heard use the n-word for instance like oh. straight up n-i-g-g-e-r right um, okay, never so. heard gay, never haven't ever heard a gay guy in 30 years of this shit. Haven't heard a gay guy do that shit, right? Have definitely heard trans folks do it. There's something about trans organizers who I think are a little bit more isolated from quote unquote justice communities and who come into space and they'll say some stuff. You're like, whoa, I had no idea you could say that. But that's ultimately led to a huge amount of disprivilege for black LGBT people, black trans folks. So it kind of, to me, it disproves the theory, right? That people mm -hmm. should not be given more money to help a disprivileged group when, in turn, they will disprivilege others, right? right. I, I think coming to a larger sure. theory that I'd like to put into the world called a, maybe like a harm scenario, that okay, no so harm that is created can remove harm, right? So right. by giving all the money to the trans communities that are predominantly white, that aren't working on racial issues, that are only being performative, I'm talking about you, NCTE. 
National Center for Trans Equality. I'm talking about you, Transgender Law Center, right? And these are organizations I've directly dealt with in the sense that I've known black trans people who've been fired from these groups. I've known black trans people who've been take their money has been taken, people who have literally worked who didn't get paid by these groups, right? And now they're getting all this money and, and disprivileging further uh, people of color. Right, disprivileging mm-hmm. further. So it's it's interesting because it could negate the whole LGBT thing though as well, right? That if mm-hmm. one group of people is, I we should get more than blacks. We should get more than Latinos. We should get more than immigrants. But in reality, you're disprivileging other folks, right? And right. Does, and the minute does people of color civil rights do that, right? I don't I don't see the same thing. Um, I don't see that black civil rights disprivileges white people like and there are some people who be doing it that way that i don't agree with right the crt oh, thing right. with the whole let me set white people down tell them they're evil that's some bullshit to me i ain't doing that that's a fucking you know that's not what martin Luther king was doing what you doing i i'm against it <laughs> the the okay so the trans the trans person who calls um, a black person by the N-word, that would be a racist person who may be acting in a evil manner. And so that person possibly needs to be sat down and have the evil conversation with them. Uh, but outside of that, I don't really see the necessity for sitting people down and having the evil conversation. I mean, I would say a lot of times these people, uh, they don't even know it's happening. I, I had a straight person come and tell me about it because some, they were on a show a Caitlyn Jenner document, a documentary, you know, Caitlyn Jenner had a show a while back. So somebody I knew who was on that show was like, listen, a whole bunch of these trans activists are using the N word with Caitlyn. They're all talking the N word. We drop this tape and leak it. By the way, if you want to leak that tape, I'm down with that now. Um, anybody who's listening, <laughs> I was like, I, I mean, I'm talking about really big names in the trans community who are using the N word with abandon. Um, and it's, and, and my, and the person who was my Tragedy. friend was, was a queer person she wanted to tell people she wanted to tell me it was as part of a larger conversation about race right Mm -hmm. so it wasn't just like we're going to call black people n-word it was more like i want to use this term historically why can't i use this term historically don't i have the right to use this term as a trans person who's also been disprivileged right which whole bunch of mess whole bunch of problems right um But, you know, so it was part of a, 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 what do you call it, you know, a philosophical discussion, right? Mm -hmm. But, and a lot of times, if you have a a straight, white, non-trans man who has that discussion, he'd be fired, and he'd be canceled for the rest of his life, right? Mm -hmm. Not even allowed to bring it up. Where Mm -hmm. inside of LGBT space, inside of uh, women's space or others, those conversations are very active with no accountability, Mm. right? And I do think that's part of the reason why many black LGBT people don't engage in LGBT space because it's like, I don't, I don't need to be the punching bag. I don't need to be the, well, what do you think? Can I use racism with you? Like, <laughs> no, yeah, no. So you can't, you can't ever. Um, and just because I'm white, you can't use it with me either. Let me clarify that one right here and now, because that yeah. shit pisses me all the way off. Like I can't well, even I think- begin there's a new way that people are looking at race that I think will impact you and how you experience it as well. It's coming from the native community, mm. which has been kind of hunting down, if for lack of a better word, a group of folks that they identify as pretendians, right? Uh-huh. And so these are people who have identified themselves usually in academia or in some other form of power work 
uh, as native people or people of native ancestry, but their families don't have a tribal connection. They're not enrolled. They're not, um, they can't say where their family member came from. A lot of times it's just family lore that they're basically passing down and being like somebody in my life, in my family was Cherokee several generations ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now the native community is pushing back on this and saying no more professors who are not enrolled. And the way it was put recently for one woman who was um, removed from her position was to be native is not an ancestry. It is a political and legal responsibility to a tribe. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really good way to put it, because that's also, I think, for African-American folks that mm -hmm. if you are so light that no one can tell you're black, mm -hmm. you basically aren't black anymore to a certain extent. Right. In the sense that you go through the world with what we identify as white face privilege. Mm -hmm. And while you yourself may have black food, black family, your experience will be different than a person who has darker skin. Mm -hmm. Right. And the legal and reality responsibilities of how you're going to live your life will not match people who are black just right. because you have black ancestry. Right. But I think what, what the problem is, is not a problem about black people or brown people. It's the idea of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'd love to get rid of. I don't think anybody's really white. I think you're Italian, <laughs> you're Swedish, you are all these things. And I just tell you, here's my ultimate dream. People don't know this, but I'll tell you and whoever's listening. But my dream someday is that this country goes back under native land and native rule. Right. And that we're able to repatriate everybody back to their countries who would like to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And that anybody who stays at this point is an American who also is willing to work under native laws, technologies and thought processes. Right. And that's also based off of what I know of how the Native Americans took care of this country for like 100,000 years. Before anybody got here, they were there was a real strong awareness of how the country worked, how it could provide for people as far as food and resources. Mm -hmm. And and again, nothing perfect. Slavery is happening, mm -hmm. native folks, we got people getting killed, we got a whole bunch of stuff happening. Mm -hmm. But how can we take our our rise in, in species, right? How can we expand our humanity when we're still keeping uh, the folks who did that work on reservations here? So I have I have my own interesting little dream of America. Um, I don't know that repatriation is possible at, at this point um, in our society. And I've given a significant amount of thought to this because I, I recognize that um, what we have inherited is a very unfair system to the people who were here before. Um, yeah. It's also unfair to the people who are here now. Yeah. Um, so it's unfair to the children of the colonizers as well as the children of the, the inhabitants that were living here before. Um, we, as children, did not do the system that we have inherited. Yes. But we're all, we're all fucked into figuring out how to work in it. Yes. And one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that the word state in United States means country. A state is a country. And whether or not everybody in the United States of America is willing to admit it, each state is its own country. 
We are the 50 countries of America. We are not the country of America. We are the United 50 countries of America. And the reason why we have extradition treaties between the states is because we have extradition treaties between the countries of America. And the federal laws that we have are there to join our different countries so that we can work together as a united group of countries that have a common goal, and that is common defense. The federal government is a defense force. It should be. Um, Now, one of the things that that means for us is that our founders and the people like the Indians are nations. Each one of the Indian tribes is a nation, which means that they should have the right as sovereign nations to be able to join the United States, which are countries, Hmm. as sovereign nations. That's a good play. I like that. And so what I see is that we are missing a possibility of having First Nations join as Confederate members, as united members, and bringing in their knowledge. And instead of keeping them as separate members and keeping them as repressed and keeping them as far from their own ability to um say self-govern and and have a voice in government and to say make um make known things about the land that we might not be aware of in the government seat we would finally give them a place at the table and have an opportunity to hear something from our own ancestors many of which we may not have tribal knowledge because we lost who in our family members should have been on the rolls. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we all don't have a responsibility still to those tribes. Yeah. And as far as the, the legal ramifications of tribes, you know, engaging the, the, the Supreme court and others on the treaties that were broken, that could be a larger type of class action uh, kind of Result. I mean, it would be a constitutional amendment that would have to be passed by three quarters of the House, I believe it is, right, of representatives to pass a congressional amendment. And I will note that the Equal Rights Amendment for Women has never passed, so odds are low. But (laughs) if we're talking about right in this moment, yeah, but like perhaps in 50 to 100 years as far as what could be true, you know, what could happen. Right, that that could be a really reasonable outcome to reintegrate and, and move away from the assimilationist ideology mm-hmm. that everybody belongs in the same way. We're all American in the same way, right? It's like, no, some of us have 10,000 years here and we understand how to like survive in this world without no help from technology, right? right. And other people are not like that and just got off the boat and just got here, right? Mm-hmm. And I also think the larger thing too is that we I would like to move away from our country being immigration's country. Mm-hmm. And and this concept of the American dream I think is a, is a misnomer at best. And more of a nightmare for most people, multi-generations in, that what yeah. they thought they would find here is different, right? Um, and that a lot of folks are still being told this dream by folks who have no good interest for them. Right. I was thinking maybe one of the best ways to solve 
immigration is actually, you know, they've been like, you know, everybody's busting everybody around, right? Like Texas buses them to New York, New York is busting them to Florida. And I was like, what if y'all just bust them back to their home countries with like $10,000 each? Like, <laughs> so, okay, so I just want to do the that. numbers. I just want to, so, I just want to check the data. Cause I feel like if we look at how much money we spend on immigrants here, Versus okay, how much so, we could be investing in Latin America. So no, like no, we that's we're turning down money. That's a huge. That's a huge thing. Okay, so one of the, I say I don't, I don't, I haven't for the last two years paid that much attention to the news. Um, but my understanding of one of the, um, one of the goals that President Biden has for his foreign policy is actually investment in places where we have high numbers of illegal immigration um deep where we're we're having to deport large numbers of people back to because if we invest in their their homes they'll quit leaving well i think that's the thing is that governmental investment versus personal investment right right and i what i'm kind of envisioning is that like these people who care so much about immigrants who are donating so much money would actually start giving it to the immigrants right oh. and that when you actually talk to these people about what they're experiencing they don't want to leave their homes to come here they want a better life mm -hmm. and i'm suggesting that american dollars can help make that happen almost in a system um similar to the microfinancing that's been happening across africa Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. we as people would stop giving our money to what I call the, you know, nonprofit industrial complex that essentially creates huge infrastructures that does none of that ultimately will do a tiny amount of this. Right. So they'll so have a president, a CEO, all these people. And then finally, there'll be that one person who gives the immigrant one hundred dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. And instead of having all those people you spend a million dollars on, I'm like, give an immigrant ten thousand send them home, have them be accountable for how they're building their business, have them have access to business development, have them have access to business financing and opportunity to build what they want to build in that area. And a lot of that, the difficulty right now is because we have gangs, because we have crime there as well, right? That prohibits those folks from building their businesses and being able to stabilize. So that's a larger kind of conversation about the defense of those countries. And, in, and I would say, can we give them money for guns? Can we do that type of stuff? to help them prevent the cartels and all those things. But it's also a message to the cartels, right? That the cartels understand that they may have a finite financial reality with drugs and prostitution or, and coyote, all these type of human-based businesses mm. that if a cartel were to put it out there, go straight and become an investment partner for governments, we're talking about billions of dollars. Right. And these are people, I mean, it's a wild thought, but the cartel people know what they're doing. So <laughs> right, they've already got the network in place. I'm just saying it's already there. We have everything we need, you know? So I always say problems are solutions, right? You, oh my God, we have to do something about the cartels. Have you ever thought about talking to them? Right. Have we engaged <laughs> with them? For the most part, our governments have seen them as a threat. Our governments have seen them as people we need to fight and constantly surveil instead of create a working relationship with. And if you go to Mexico, you go to these areas, the way the cartels operate is not like the mafia. It's not like they are a secret group of people. Everybody knows who they are. Like even recently, there was this terrible shooting situation where some black people came from America 
and one of them was trying to get a gastric surgery or some, you know, some, they wanted to get plastic surgery. So they drove to Mexico with their friends, four black people, and then they were mistaken for Haitian drug traffickers, supposedly, and kidnapped in broad daylight. It was all caught on camera, these American citizens being taken. And then, you know, a couple days later, the Mexican government, American government found the two survivors, got them back to the United States. About two days after that, a cartel produced five more people, blindfolded and handcuffed, ready to be arrested. And they had a note that said, we as the cartel deeply apologize for the loss of these people's families. This was absolutely not uh, organized by us. We did not agree to this. These people were acting on their own. You know, we're, we are apologizing and, you know, you have our thoughts and prayers. <laughs> and it delivered five people who were responsible for this. And I'm like, listen, if we can't figure out a way to make that work for us, we stupid. <laughs> yeah. Because a young woman was shot as well during this. She was a, a young church assistant or something, just a lovely young woman who got caught in the crossfire and they apologized to her family and maybe have made financial donations to her family. But I'm like, these folks are operating with some serious like rules and accountability internally that mm -hmm. if you gave them an opportunity to make billions of dollars as an infrastructure builder for their country, <laughs> would they all be corrupt or would they actually be doing for their country? Because I actually think that it's possible these people are actually thinking this is the best way I can serve my people, right? Mm. Is by sending drugs to America for these druggos to, you know, take this and we'll make some money off of them. And ultimately, that's, you know, it's a finite enterprise. We all die of fentanyl and trank. You know, uh, your business is over. So, okay, so this may seem like a kind of a left field change of subject, but it also isn't because it, it um, it's, I'm going to, to speak about climate change, but it applies in the um, doing the best you can to, to support your community aspect of what you're talking about. Let's take a pause okay. and start a new episode with climate change. Yeah. Okay. And so, because I got to pause, I have to stop I recording, gotta, and I got to go pee. Yeah, I got to pee too. I've been holding Sorry. it for a bit. Everybody's got to know my business, but I it's a small. It, it doesn't right matter. <laughs> so we're gonna stop this episode, episode three, and we're gonna start up in just a second talking about climate change. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>